Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. Today, we're looking at how a new voting method is gaining traction in states and its potential to transform U.S. politics and the rising influence of Gen Z in the political landscape. Plus, House Republicans rally at the southern border as Senate talks continue, and we'll delve into the story of how a proxy fight over campus politics led to the downfall of Harvard's president. All this coverage and more, up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. A new voting system, ranked choice voting, is gaining traction in the United States. It's being paired with a new system for primaries known as Final Five or Final Four. Abby, can you tell us more about this? Sure, Michael. Ranked choice voting, or RCV, asks voters to rank multiple candidates in order of preference. The idea is that these twin reforms deliver fair outcomes that better reflect the will of voters, while disempowering the extremes and encouraging candidates and elected officials to prioritize conciliation and compromise. So it seems like this system is designed to create a government focused not on partisan point scoring, but on delivering tangible results that improve voters' lives. Can you give us an example of where this system is being used? Absolutely. Alaska is currently the only state using this system, and it appears to be seeing some benefits to its political culture already. After years of partisan rancor, both legislative chambers are now controlled by bipartisan majorities eager to find common ground and respond to the needs of voters. Nevada could soon follow in Alaska's footsteps as voters approved a constitutional amendment that would create an RCV plus Final Five system. Interesting. How does this new system work exactly? In the primary election, candidates from all parties compete against each other, with voters picking only their top choice. The top four or five finishers, regardless of party, advance to the general. In the general, voters use RCV to pick the winner. They fill out their ballot by ranking as many of the candidates as they want, by order of preference. If no candidate wins a majority of first place votes, the candidate who finished last is eliminated, and his or her supporters' second place votes are allocated. This continues until someone gains a majority and is declared the winner. So the system is designed to give a voice to a broader share of voters and ensure a fairer result. But how does it change how candidates and elected officials approach their jobs? The two reforms together can change how candidates and elected officials approach their jobs by adjusting the incentive structure they operate under. Right now, with politicians worrying more about the primary than the general, they're more focused on playing to their base than on reaching beyond it and solving problems. By allowing multiple candidates to advance, Final Four Five shifts the crucial election from the primary to the general. And RCV means the votes of Democrats in red districts and Republicans in blue ones still matter, even if their top choice remains unlikely to win. So it seems like this system is designed to encourage candidates and elected officials toward moderation and problem solving and away from extremism. But what about the opposition? Are there any concerns about this system? Yes, there is a backlash to this change with several Republican-led states banning RCV in recent years. Critics argue it would confuse voters and further reduce confidence in election results. Some even see a progressive plot. However, there are also signs of emerging interest among some Republicans in other states who think reform could allow them to advance more electable candidates. It's certainly a complex issue. Thanks for the insights, Abby. Speaking of complex issues, the rise of Generation Z in politics is a topic that's been gaining a lot of traction lately. These young individuals are not only engaging in political discourse, 
but are also actively driving social change. Abby, can you shed some light on this? Absolutely, Michael. Gen Z, often criticized for their digital habits, are proving to be a force to reckon with in the political arena. They're not just participating. They're making their voices heard and refusing to back down on their beliefs. A survey by Tufts Tisch College found that a majority of young people view politics as an integral part of their personal identity. That's interesting. Can you give us some examples of how they're making their mark? Certainly. Take Abby Regensberger, a junior at Cutstown University of Pennsylvania, for instance. Despite juggling two majors and five minors, she runs the Women in Politics Club on campus. The club's mission is to cultivate the next generation of female leaders, advocate for gender and LGBTQ equality, and drive positive change. They host events, invite politicians for Q&A sessions, and provide a platform for women to voice their opinions. That's quite impressive. But what's driving this level of engagement among Gen Z? A sense of urgency, Michael. 55% of those aged 18 to 29 believe the country is headed in the wrong direction, and 76% believe they have the power to change that. This generation is not just waiting for change. They're actively working towards it. The Parkland High School shooting in 2018, for instance, sparked one of the biggest youth-led movements in history, encouraging young people to stand up for their beliefs. And with the 2024 presidential election approaching, I imagine their involvement is only going to increase. Absolutely. Abby and her peers are hard at work. They're advocating for issues like banning assault rifles, ensuring reproductive rights for women, LGBTQ rights, and climate protection. They're not losing faith. They're motivated to create the world they want to live in. And it's important to note that by 2028, millennials and Gen Z will make up a majority of the voting population. So their concerns can't be ignored. It's clear that Gen Z's political involvement is not just a trend, but a significant shift in our political landscape. In a shift of focus, House Republicans are making their way to Texas to voice their concerns about what they perceive as the Biden administration's failure to adequately address the influx of migrants at the border. Abby, our correspondent, is here to delve deeper into this. Abby, what can you tell us about this delegation? Well, Michael, this delegation is led by Speaker Mike Johnson and includes about 60 House Republicans. They're heading to Eagle Pass, Texas, where they plan to meet with federal and local officials. They're also expected to hold a press conference this Wednesday afternoon. What is the main objective of this delegation? What are they hoping to achieve? Their main objective is to highlight what they see as the Biden administration's shortcomings in handling the border situation. They're hoping to bring national attention to the issue and put pressure on the administration to take more decisive action. It's also a way for them to rally their base and potentially influence policy discussions back in Washington. And how is this move being perceived? Is there any pushback or support for their actions? As with any political move, there's a mix of support and criticism. Supporters see this as a necessary step to bring attention to a pressing issue, while critics argue it's more about political posturing than finding actual solutions. It's also important to note that this is happening while Senate negotiators are meeting on Capitol Hill in a last-ditch effort to strike a bipartisan deal to revamp U.S. border policies. So the timing is certainly interesting. It indeed is. Now let's talk about these Senate negotiations. What's the latest on that front? Details are still emerging, but it's clear that there's a sense of urgency to find a bipartisan solution to the border issue. It's a complex problem with no easy answers, but these negotiations could potentially lead to significant changes in U.S. border policies. We'll have to wait and see what comes out of these discussions.
Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. Thanks for the insights, Abby. In other news, the recent resignation of Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, has sparked a flurry of reactions and discussions. Gay's departure comes amidst accusations of plagiarism and criticism over her handling of anti-Semitism on campus. Abby, our education correspondent, is here to help us unpack this. Abby, what can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding Gay's resignation? Well, Michael, Gay's resignation is seen by many as a significant victory for conservative activists who have been pushing for changes in higher education. They've been targeting diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, which they see as part of an ideological shift in academia. Gay's departure is seen as a major win in this ideological battle. So this isn't just about Harvard. It's about a broader ideological battle within American higher education. Exactly, Michael. Until recently, these conservative-led efforts were primarily focused on public universities in conservative-leaning states. But Gay's resignation marks a significant victory at one of the country's most prestigious private universities. It's a signal that this ideological battle is not confined to public institutions or conservative states. What about the plagiarism allegations? How significant were they in Gay's resignation? The plagiarism allegations were indeed a significant factor. Conservative activists and outlets began scrutinizing Gay's academic work, and their findings were picked up by mainstream news outlets. The allegations spanned nearly half of her published academic articles. But it's important to note that Gay's departure is also seen as a proxy victory in the broader ideological battle over American higher education. What's the reaction been like from those who support Gay and her work? Many of Gay's supporters have expressed concern that her resignation will embolden conservative interference in universities and threaten academic freedom. They argue that this is part of a larger campaign against the independence of colleges and universities, similar to efforts by Republican leaders in states like Florida. So what does this mean for the future of higher education in America? Is this a sign of things to come? It's hard to say, Michael. While this is a significant victory for conservative activists, it's unclear if it will lead to a broader remaking of higher education. There's a lot of resistance to government interference in what gets taught in university classrooms. But what's clear is that the ideological battle over American higher education is far from over. It's a complex and evolving situation. Thanks for the insights, Abby. And with that, we conclude our stories for today on Current Radio. Looking forward to sharing more updates with you tomorrow.